Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. On today's California Report magazine, we meet a Bay Area woman who's part of a little-known group of Japanese Peruvians imprisoned during World War II. And we head to Humboldt County to explore how legalizing marijuana has affected farming and food. Unfortunately, I have really bad timing because our community was collapsing. Plus, raising an infant and a toddler while living between homeless shelters and cars. I'm Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Thousands of families who've come to the U.S. to seek asylum in recent years have ended up in detention centers in South Texas. Hearing about kids and parents locked behind barbed wire fences hits close to home for one woman from the San Francisco Bay Area. She spent years of her childhood in a South Texas internment camp during World War II. KQED's Julie Small recently joined her on a pilgrimage from California to a place called Crystal City. President Roosevelt said in a statement today that the Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, from the air. The Japanese military bombing of Pearl Harbor would change the course of Libya Yamamoto's life forever. She was born in Peru to parents who emigrated from Japan decades before. The family owned several thriving businesses in the coastal city of Chiclayao. Then, one year after Pearl Harbor, police in Peru arrested Libya's father. She was seven years old. Now she's 84, and she's on a bus with a group of people who all share a connection to the Crystal City internment camp. All these years later, Libya recalls in detail that moment her father was loaded onto a truck and driven away. In between sobs, I would ask my mother, where's she going? And she says she didn't know. She says, when is she coming back? The U.S. government had pressured Latin American countries to turn over thousands of people of Japanese, German, and Italian ancestry under the pretext of national security. I learned about this little-known chapter of World War II history 20 years ago when a friend told me that's what happened to his family. I wasn't a reporter back then, and I started to help some of the Japanese Latin Americans who were demanding an apology from the U.S. government. That's how I first met Libya, who recalls that a month after her father disappeared, he managed to send a letter for her sister's birthday. He had enclosed some press flowers, and he said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry I can't give you any birthday present, so this will have to do it. He'd been put to work in a U.S. Army camp in Panama. If the family wanted to see him again, authorities said they'd have to board a ship to the United States. Libya, her mother, and two siblings joined other wives and children at the dock, 
unsure of what lay ahead. We saw the soldiers lined up with guns. We thought, as soon as we go to high seas, they're going to kill us all. I was so afraid. None of the families were allowed visas, and the soldiers confiscated any passports. They arrived in New Orleans, where immigration agents told them they had entered the U.S. illegally. They sent them to a detention facility for, quote, enemy aliens. A propaganda film by the U.S. Department of Justice shows families arriving by train. Here is a party of women and children arriving in Crystal City, following their voluntary decision to join husbands and fathers in detention. But Libya's family didn't feel like their detention was voluntary. They would spend the next four years locked in the camp, along with thousands of other people from Latin America. I actually traveled to this area of Texas earlier this year to report on a new wave of families the U.S. was detaining. Thousands of mothers and their children seeking refuge from violence in Central America had been taken into custody by immigration and customs enforcement and placed in a private prison. That prison, in a town called Dili, was just 45 miles away from where Libya's family was detained during World War II. ICE had denied my request to visit the facility, so one day last winter, I stood outside the fenced enclosure with an immigrant advocate named Katie Merza. Yeah, you can pretty much see the tops of the light posts. There's flood lighting at night, so people say it's even hard to sleep. The Crystal City internment camp was also surrounded by high fences and floodlights, but not anymore. When Libya's bus arrives, the only recognizable site in this now barren field is a water tower. That was our central point. That was, that was our landmark. And there's the base of a reservoir the parents converted into a swimming pool to make the hot summers bearable. They added a rope in the middle where they, to divide the deep and the shallow part. And then they added uh, diving boards. Two girls drowned in the pool, one of them Libya's friend. Now Libya joins other former detainees and their families for a ceremony to honor the girls and 15 other people who died at the camp. Buddhist minister Ron Kobata from San Francisco asks participants to honor the fortitude of the detainees with incense and white carnations at an altar. The dedication of our predecessors who endured this experience, but not with just pity and resentment, but with determination so that their offspring will not have to endure that same tragedy. But Libya and the other pilgrims see tragedy unfolding again. No, no, never again. What will never again? The next day, she speaks to a crowd at a rally in San Antonio. Lately, when I, I hear the immigrants getting separated by their children and parents, I feel so bad for them. The forced separation from her father in 1943 is still painful. We said goodbye to him, not knowing where he was being taken or when we ever will see him again. It was a very, very traumatic day for me. After several months of separation, Libya was finally reunited with her father in Crystal City. That's when they learned the U.S. planned to deport the family to Japan. But Libya's father had become too ill to travel. They stayed in the camp a full two years after the war ended. In 1947, an attorney at the ACLU of Northern California finally got them released. 
With the help of a church group, the family was able to settle with an aunt in Berkeley. Libya remembers a Japanese minister picked them up at the train station. And he drove up university and all the neon lights were shining. <laughs> wow, we were just <laughs> amazed at all these beautiful lights. Libya's family lost all their property in Peru and were not allowed to return. She says her parents worked menial jobs in California for the rest of their lives. Finally, in 1998, the Japanese Latin Americans won a settlement, $5,000 each and a letter of apology from President Bill Clinton. While many thought it was insufficient, it was the first official acknowledgement that the U.S. had violated their rights. Now Libya says she's praying that President Trump will see that his treatment of immigrant families is too harsh and that children are paying the price. For The California Report, I'm Julie Small. For almost two years after she left her abusive husband, Eva Morales moved from homeless shelter to homeless shelter. Sometimes she stayed with friends. And on the worst nights, she slept in a friend's car. She says it was cold and uncomfortable. The hardest part, she says, was doing this with her two small children. Eva lives in San Francisco, where she couldn't afford childcare or housing on her own. Reporter Zadie Stavely sat down with Eva and found out about a place that's been quietly helping parents like her for years. Eva had a two-year-old boy and a girl who was just a few months old when she decided to leave her husband. The abuse had become too much. Still, she says, she felt so guilty for leaving. Eva says her kids were having to adapt to one shelter, then being taken someplace new, then again adapting, and then having to move. She says her son changed. He was more aggressive, Eva says. He was angry almost all the time. He didn't want to play with his sister. He didn't want to eat the food at the shelter. It didn't help that most days he had to go with his mom to appointments, a lot of appointments. Without child care, homeless parents have to take their children along with them to turn in applications for apartments and jobs and meet with case managers. Eva says the appointments took up all her time. She had to get the kids up really early, take them with her, and then go from one appointment to another, sometimes without even eating because the appointments were back-to-back. The kids would get tired of just sitting in one place, she says. And after a while, they would start saying, I want to go, I'm hungry. Almost a quarter million children under six in California experience homelessness each year. Some, like Eva's kids, are living in cars or shelters. Others pack into apartments with more than one family. Research shows that when infants and toddlers are homeless, it can really hurt their development, and that means they often struggle in kindergarten. Eva started looking for childcare. And she found this place, Compass Family Services. It's trying to erase the hurdles that homeless parents like Eva run up against when they're looking for childcare. They help parents fill out childcare applications, They find out if parents are eligible for any kind of subsidy. 
Until recently, San Francisco was the only county in California that had a program like this just for homeless parents. Now other counties like Alameda are following its lead. Eva is meeting with her case manager. She just got her daughter enrolled in an in-home child care and her son at a Head Start preschool program. She says at first he was only playing alone, but the teacher just told her he's now playing with the other kids. Cuando empezó a ir a la escuela, estaba más enérgico, como que se había relajado. When he started going to school, he was more energetic, Eva says. He relaxed, he was more patient with his sister, and he started eating a little better. He would come home singing and skipping, and he would ask, am I going to school tomorrow? He was excited. Once Eva's kids both had stable childcare, she was finally able to move into a two-bedroom apartment in San Francisco through a transitional housing program that will pay half of her rent for three years. By then, both her children will be in elementary school, and she hopes to have a steady job. After surviving domestic violence and being homeless, Eva still doesn't quite feel totally safe. She didn't want me to come visit her new home. But she told me her kids couldn't believe it when they first saw the apartment. They had lots of questions. Whose place is this, they asked. Are we going to live here? And we're not going to move again? No, Eva answered. We're not going to move again. For the California Report, I'm Zadie Stavely. This story was produced in collaboration with EdSource, a nonprofit journalism organization reporting on California education. Police shoot and kill more than 100 Californians each year. Almost all these shootings are legally justified. Force of Law is a podcast that's just wrapping up its first season. It explores a fight in the state capitol over limiting when California police can use deadly force. It's reported and hosted by Laurel Rosenhall, who's a political reporter with Cal Matters, and she joins me now from Sacramento. Hi, Laurel. Hi, Sasha. Before we go on to talk about your podcast, we should warn listeners that we will be playing some excerpts that include some intense sound of violent incidents. Tell us about the inspiration for doing this podcast. Well, you may remember that in 2018, Sacramento police killed a young man named Stefan Clark. And they thought he was pointing a gun at them, but it turned out to be a cell phone. He had run into the backyard of his grandparents' house when police confronted him. This case led to a proposal to change the law, to make a new state law that would limit when police could shoot. We knew going into 2019 that this bill would be extremely controversial. When this bill was first proposed, it would have been the nation's toughest standard for the use of deadly force. 
You know, one of the things I think you do so beautifully in this podcast is that you really capture the intense emotions on both sides of this debate, both the people who are in law enforcement and the grieving families. I'm thinking in particular of one woman, Lori Valdez. Lori is um, a woman who lives in San Jose. She has six children, and she became an activist on the issue of police shootings after her partner was killed about five years ago. Um, He was an undocumented immigrant named Antonio Guzman Lopez, and he was walking through the campus of San Jose State holding this saw blade. People called 911. They thought it looked strange and a little menacing, and the police showed up. They told him to drop the blade, and um, they tased him. And then when he moved toward one of the officers, they shot him. My daughter, Angelique, she said, Mom, what's wrong with you? You know, because I started, like, crying, like, silently, like, no, this can't be happening. And then I said, I think your puppy's dead. You know, five years after that happened, I went with Lori when she saw the police body cam video for the first time, the one that showed her partner being killed. This video had been reviewed by prosecutors and judges, and the shooting was deemed 100 percent, you know, legal and by the book. Um, For Lori, of course, that was her partner. She knew that he didn't understand English. She knew he was afraid of the police. She saw him sort of trying to run for his life, not trying to attack the police. And the fact that, you know, these two sides could kind of look at the same video and see completely different things sort of symbolized the debate over this bill. The ACLU and the activists that were working with all these families who have experienced police violence, they were proposing a tougher standard that they call the necessary standard. And the idea there is that police could only shoot when necessary. So originally, they wanted necessary to mean that there would be no reasonable alternative. Police could only shoot when nothing else would work. And what did the police think of that proposal? For them, that suggestion was deadly. They do not want to be in the position of waiting to be, in their minds, shot at before they can themselves shoot. Julie Robertson, for example, she's the deputy sheriff in Sacramento County. She testified earlier this year about a harrowing incident when she and her partner, another deputy sheriff named Mark Statsyuk, were dispatched to a car parts store in Sacramento. Within 10 seconds of arriving at the store, the subject began shooting at us. As he was finding cover, the gunman continued to fire at Mark while chasing him, resulting in Mark's almost immediate death. At one point during the firefight, the gunman began shooting with only his back exposed to me. I recall in that moment thinking that if I were to shoot him in the back, I would be the next officer in the news being scrutinized for my actions. And to her, the idea of having to do a no reasonable alternative, you know, measurement of what other choices she had would put her own life in danger. One of the people in Sacramento trying to broker a deal between these two sides was Assemblymember Shirley Weber. Tell us about her. Since she's been in Sacramento the last few years, she's really earned a reputation as someone who is willing to go up against some of the very powerful political forces in the state capitol, including the teachers unions and the police. Here she is earlier this year on the steps of the state capitol on a day when pastors from around the state had come up to lobby in support of her bill. And so I stand here as a daughter of a sharecropper who has lived through horrors of racism and the injustices of the judicial system. And after all of that, I have to stand 
and recognize the fact that things need to change. Yes. That my father endured injustices and indignities that my grandchildren should never have to face. That's right. That's right. And so I stand here. Ultimately, a version of her bill did pass. Tell us what the new law does. Yeah, well, it does enact the necessary standard that the activists want, but it took out that idea that the police didn't like, which was the idea of no reasonable alternative. So in the end, the law says that police can only use deadly force when it's necessary in defense of human life. The supporters of the bill would say that by having this tougher standard, by having more training, they hope that it'll prevent things a little bit more upstream before the moment of the shooting. That's Laurel Rosenhall. She's a political reporter for Cal Matters in Sacramento, and she's the host of Force of Law, a podcast that explores the debate over a new law that takes effect January 1st, limiting the use of deadly force by California police. And now we head to Humboldt County, which has long been the heart of cannabis country. Since Californians voted to legalize marijuana three years ago, the price per pound has dropped, which means the economy in this region is in limbo. For her series, California Foodways, Lisa Morehouse investigates how marijuana legalization has impacted the local food scene. When I drive the commercial strip in Garberville, I see some boarded-up storefronts and closed businesses. The whole place looks like it could use a coat of paint. It's really different than the thriving downtown I remember from when I reported on marijuana here almost 10 years ago. Thanks for being adventurous. (laughs) At the end of town, Beth Allen works the takeout counter at Amelia's, which serves local food. They've known their pig farmer for nearly two decades. He drives to Eureka with a trailer, gets whatever's left over from the Booth Brewing Company, and his pigs are raised on marijuana and beer. Like so many people in Southern Humboldt, Beth has her feet in two worlds, running a public business and growing cannabis. She remembers when, in the 1980s, Law enforcement sent helicopters into the remote hills. We were protesting and not moving out of the way so the helicopters could land. And you see all of the rivets under the belly of that helicopter. Back then, when it was really risky to grow and sell cannabis, the profits were high. Growers had money in their pockets that they could spend on higher-end restaurants and specialty foods. Beth rode the waves of change here, medical marijuana, the influx of get-rich-quick growers, and legalization, which she supported. Then, in 2017, she tried getting a permit to grow legally. And I would show up at the planning department with a box of pastries, a big smile on my face, and saying, how can we help you get us through this process? But she found it so frustrating and expensive, she gave up. One legalization expert told me it's not unusual for people to spend more than $100,000 getting licensed. At the same time, the restaurant business started to falter. Five years ago, Amelia's added onto their takeout counter with a dining room downstairs. Unfortunately, uh, I have really bad timing because our community was collapsing, a beginning of the collapse. At first, she says, they had a thriving dinner service and private parties. But legalization triggered a drop in price, 
under $1,000 per pound, down from over 5000 in marijuana's heyday. I mean, we would have no one. We would just, all of the staff, we would just stand here. She says the takeout business dropped 50%, the dining room more than that. They stopped dinner service and went from nine employees to four. While a few restaurants have opened in the region, I ask around and find out Amelia's isn't alone. Waitresses from Ukiah to Eureka say they're seeing fewer customers, getting smaller tips. On the coast, a chef closed his high-end restaurant after the economy started to dip. Now, Beth says she's really questioning her earlier support of legalization. I, I just, I lay in bed at night and think, what was I thinking? <laughs> I have strived to feed my community, and I pray every day for guidance of what is the right path for us and what is the right path for my community. So I start to wonder, if restaurants are struggling, how are produce farmers doing? First, I take a detour to the little town of Whitethorn, to a cannabis distribution center for the company Flo Kana. A worker wheels in a pallet stacked with local cannabis, grown organically in the sun. Six people in lab coats sit in a spotless but pungent warehouse, trimming buds. And here's where the produce comes in. On a break, employees get their weekly vegetable boxes from Daniel Stein of Bryceland Forest Farms. Beets, carrots, broccoli, lettuce. Wow, thank you. <laughs> yeah, pleasure. According to Flocana, the company's purchased nearly 5,000 produce boxes for its employees across the state, paying local farmers almost $150,000. This is a new revenue stream for Daniel, a small one. He's historically sold most of his produce at farmers markets, like the one I visit him at the next day. The long cukes in this middle one, and a basket over here of like the chard and kale and stuff. But he says he's seen fewer people here, and his income's down. We had an economy here that was largely based on the legacy market. Also known as the black market. And under that economy, I think money flowed more freely. People had more time. And now? The economy is changing to one of legitimate, I say in quotation marks, <laughs> businesses based around farms that are complying with regulations on cannabis. So I think our economy and our culture right now is in a period of, of unknown. And that's keeping people from spending, too. For people like Beth Allen, the past few years have devastated her restaurant and cannabis incomes. Farmer Daniel Stein and his young family are nervous, but they're trying to adapt. The next day, I go to their farm, where their values are all over the land. Vibrant row crops fill their small one-acre farm, surrounded by forest land they maintain. Daniel and his wife Taylor pull their baby in a wagon. This transition time is certainly scary, watching things board up and close down. But at the same time, the, the community is discovering its new identity. One that's probably going to be less flush with cash than in the past. Daniel and Taylor are pretty okay with that. Here's kale. There's a little frog hopping uh, cabbage to cabbage. Lemon cucumbers. So good. 
Growing next to and among the produce are towering cannabis plants. It is a more profitable crop than veggies alone at the moment, even though that is changing. Cannabis, it, it's a dance partner through the season. It is so rewarding to grow a plant that starts from a seed in February and is the size of a tree in November. It responds to your attention and care immediately. I asked them, what was it like before legalization? We had the time and the resources to prioritize and focus on the things that were important to us. Like building up their homestead and restoring a creek on their property for salmon habitat. And being able to to experiment and push the limits with our food farming. Daniel says now that they're spending a lot of time and money on getting permits to grow cannabis legally, they don't really have that luxury. But he says they're holding on, that they're going to keep farming their way and keep farming both food and cannabis and hoping that'll allow them to make a living and raise their family in this place. For The California Report, I'm Lisa Morehouse in Southern Humboldt. And that's it for The California Report magazine. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our director this week is Amanda Font. Seal Muller is our technical producer with additional engineering from Jacob Winnick. Our senior editor is Victoria Mauleon. And this week we say goodbye to our incredibly talented intern, Asal Asanapur. Our editorial team includes Susie Racho, Taiki Hendricks, Vinnie Tong, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Sasha Koka. Happy holidays. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at irvine.org. The California Healthcare Foundation, presenting Trade-Offs, a new podcast that tries to make sense of our costly and complicated healthcare system. Subscriptions at tradeoffs.org or wherever you get your podcasts. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.